Let's turn in our scriptures to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Obviously, 2 Samuel comes right after 1 Samuel. And do you folks remember what the theme of 2 Samuel is? Anybody? Rick, can you jump in there? 2 Samuel is the story of David, isn't it? The story of David. And for those of you who are wondering why I'm even asking, well, downstairs we've been taking a survey of the Old Testament and we're trying to memorize not only the books of the Old Testament, but what they're about. And, um, well, maybe we need to work on that. (laughs) 2 Samuel is about the life and the reign of David as the king. Um, And what we see here is that 2 Samuel begins with the story of the death of the first king. King Saul and his son, the prince Jonathan, die in battle. They die uh, while in battle in a place called Gilboa, the heights of Gilboa. This was uh, some hills in that portion of Israel, about eight miles long and about four miles wide. And they go to battle, and there they are overtaken, and they die. And now David is going to become the king. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, the first chapter, has for us a lament. A lament written by David in honor of King Saul and David's best friend, Jonathan. A lament is obviously not a cheerful song or poem. It's a lament. Um, Usually they are poems, and sometimes, even often, they are put to music. Have you ever tried your hand at poetry? Anybody? One, just two, never, four, five, right? I have, and it was anything but poetic. My wife told me so. (laughs) Some people have a great skill with poetry. Uh, Certainly David did. We can say that he had some help. After all, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, David rather is very poetic. He has a way with lyrics. And this is what we see here. Uh, This particular song became quite the hit in its time. A lament is a poem that expresses deep grief, especially over the death of somebody. And here we have the lament of David over the death of Saul, the king, and his best friend, Jonathan. Uh, Let me read to you the lines of, a few lines of one famous lament, a secular lament written by Walt Whitman back in 1865. Maybe you remember it from your school days. Oh, captain, my captain, rise up and hear the bells. Rise up for you, the flag is flung, for you, the bugle trills. That was about the death, the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln in 1865 after the 4 April War, the Civil War. But I think the most familiar lament to most of us here is also a very long lament, over eight minutes long. Uh, It was released back in 1971, but it's about a plane crash that occurred in 1959. 
It's entitled American Pie. Most of you know it. It begins with, long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And then it goes on saying, bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And you could probably hum out the rest. And again, it was about a plane crash and took the life of, uh, namely, Buddy Holly. It was a lament. Still is a lament. And 2 Samuel chapter 1 gives us a much more significant lament. Let me read it to you, beginning of verse 17. Chapter 1, 2 Samuel, verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. He said... Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offering. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, you, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. A sad, sad song. You know, there's a lesson to be learned in every single portion of the Bible. Have you noticed that as you read? If there's something there to be learned, there's something there to apply. You can close your eyes, open your Bible, and just put your finger down, and you'll notice that no matter what you open to, no matter what you read, there's a lesson there for your soul. And certainly this lament is the same. Uh, there are various lessons for us here. And what I want to eventually get to is that refrain, how the mighty have fallen. But in order to get there, let, let me just point out a few other uh, additional pertinent points to this song. So follow with me as we uh, run through this lament written by David, beginning with what a lament is. Let me be a little more specific than what I was just a few moments ago. As you well know, a lament expresses grief. And therefore, laments resonate with our everyday realities. It expresses grief. Uh, you know, we don't rush forward towards a lament. Rather, laments come to us. And sometimes quite often. 
Because grief is a part of our common experience. It's a part of living in this fallen world. And this is, by the way, one of the great contrasts between life here on earth and life in eternity in the presence of God. Grief here, but not there. There will be no laments in heaven. But until then, we will have many, many, many reasons to cry out to God with lamentations. But in this life, we have hope because a lament cries out to God. In fact, Pastor Mark Roger wrote a book on the laments of the Psalms. If you read through the Psalms, there's 150 of them. And you'll notice that over 60 of them are labeled laments. Uh, More than one-third are laments. And that should say something about our common human experience. And this is what he writes about a lament. He says, a lament is a prayer of pain that leads us to trust in God. A prayer of pain that leads us to to trust. Another writer said this, a lament is a quote, a wailing of the heart before God who hears, who listens, and responds. Have you ever lamented? Maybe you use somebody else's, maybe you use the psalm, or maybe it was just your own words. And your heart was wailing out to God. Understand this, he hears, he listens, And he does respond. It's said that a good cry is good for the soul. But you know what's even better? A good cry that pleads out to God. A cry that turns to Jesus Christ. That's even better for you. Now, notice something very important about a lament. A lament is not grumbling. They're two different things. You see? You'll recall the grumbling words of the people of Israel. You know, when, when they left Egypt, and in Exodus chapter 14, they look to Moses and they say, Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us out to this forsaken wilderness? Wasn't there enough graves in Egypt? How sarcastic. How grumbling. You brought us out here to die, really? You should have just left us over there. Well, Rob Brockman writes that a lament drives us further into the promises and comfort of God. Whereas grumbling drives us further away from the promises and comfort of God. We are more prone to grumble than we are to lament, correct? And as we're grumbling, what are we doing? We are steadily moving further, 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 and further away from the comfort and the promises of God. And then we say, God, where are you? Well, we just moved away from him. He's still there. It's we who have moved. You see, a biblical lament takes you towards God. Whether you're young or old. No matter how big or small your grief may be, you know, my grief may not be grief to you. You may very well say, well, I could handle that. What are you whining about? But that's not the point. The point is is that we can cry out to God. 
As we lament, we are driven further into his promises, further into the knowledge of his comfort, further into this understanding. He hears me, he is listening, and he will respond. It's not grumbling. It's actually a pursuit after God. That's what a biblical lament is. And when you know true biblical lamentation, you will know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are not catching the last train to the coast. Rather, they're there with you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are right there with you in your grief, in your sorrow. A lament is an expression to God of your sorrow, of your grief, for the purpose of looking to trust in God's sovereign control. It's not just voicing, Lord, look at me, but rather saying, Lord, I'm trusting in you. My life rests in your hands. That's a good thing. It's a good place to be. And it's a place we should all look to be, to pursue. Because otherwise you will feel alienated from God. There's no question about it. And sorrow will come. If you can't remember the last sorrowful experience you had, good. But watch out, it's coming. Because that's life here on this earth. But most of us can remember very well the sorrows we face. That's reality. It's a broken world. One day it will be restored. For all those who are in Christ, we will be in his presence. And there will be no more tears. Secondly, again, looking at the text here, I want to draw out a few points. The first one is this. You'll notice that this lament is 100% secular. Did you notice? There's not the mention of God. There's not the mention of faith. There's no mention of trust in God. There's no mention that God is in control. It's a 100% secular song. And yet it is part of the inspired scriptures. What you'll notice here is that though David does not mention God or the control of God, there is an understanding in the songwriter that God is in control. There's a deep sorrow, no question about it. But notice here, there's no despair. Why? God is in control. He does not question God, even as he writes about his sorrow. What you see here in this lament is a natural blending of a mature believer's life experiences with his knowledge that his life, his experiences, the episodes he endures are all couched in the palm of God's sovereign hand. So that he doesn't even mention God, but he knows that all this rests in God's good and powerful hands. It's a beautiful spiritual maturity that we see here. A hundred percent trusting in that God will have his way with us. David understood God's hand is on my side. And yet he never mentions God. Secondly, notice here that this is a poem that is masterfully written. 
It has been studied purely for its literary value. Many have. For those of you who take interest, it's written in a chiastic form. It contains various metaphors. There is rhythm in, uh, which is common to that ancient world. It's not the kind of rhythm we have in our poetry, but common to that part of the world in that time. And of course, there is the refrain, how mighty how the mighty have fallen. Three times over, he says it in verse 19, 25, and 27. And you'll notice there at the very beginning of the lament, verse 18, that it became a part of a of an ancient, ancient poetic book called the Book of Jashar. These are writings, these are hymns written in ancient time that became part of the anthems that the people of Israel sung. Uh, we no longer have a copy, but in various parts of the Bible you'll see a reference to it. And it's intended for the people of Judah to learn. And what you'll notice here is that it is a very personal lament. And yet it's intended to be public. Together we mourn. And David is making sure that the history is going to be remembered. It's amazing how much we remember when we put it to song, right? Very few of us can recite a poem, but you put melody behind it and we could recite it word for word. That's what songs are. How many times you turn on the radio and you could sing along songs you haven't heard in 35 years. And you say, oh yes. I remember that one. Sometimes we even remember where we were when we first heard it. It's intended to be remembered. But it offers more than just great literary value. There's even greater theological value in this lament. And maybe you noticed it. If you haven't, let me point it out to you. Now, here's the first thing that jumps out at me when I look at this. Notice here that David has no bitterness towards his mortal enemy, King Saul. King Saul is his father-in-law, but he's also the man who's trying to kill David. And yet, David is deeply mourning the death of Saul. Are you like David in any way? Think of the person who hates you the most. Think of the person who has made your life miserable at any episode. Would you be happy when that person dies? Or would you say, oh, my heart is broken. Would you write a poem about it? David is mourning, deeply so, the death of Saul. In fact, not only does he mourn Saul's death, he praises Saul. Look at what he says, verse 27. He elevates Saul as a mighty warrior. He says, the weapons of war are destroyed. Referring to Jonathan as well, but let's not forget, Saul too. He's a mighty warrior. The weapons of war have been destroyed. Move backwards to verse 23. It says that he... Saul, and and Jonathan, but Saul in particular, is faster than an eagle, stronger than a lion. Would you speak so well of your arch enemy? Well, we would all like to think that we would be so kind and honest, so benevolent towards a person who hates us. 
But would we? Would we? Look at verse 22. Saul's sword never returned to its sheath, empty until now. He speaks well of Saul. He could have said things like, well, Saul chased me and tried to kill me, and now he got what he deserved. What goes around comes around. He could have said that. God has had his way, and now Saul is dead. Vengeance has been gained. He could have said that, and we would have said, Amen. That is not what he said. T.H. Robinson writes about uh, uh, David here, and he writes this. He says, We know nothing of David which presents him in a better light. In other words, here we see David at his best. That he is able to mourn over the death of his greatest enemy. That he loves his enemy. And now the loss of this man brings him to a broken heart. And that David is able to forgive his enemy. Isn't that amazing? He's able to forgive his greatest enemy. He's broken over the death of his enemy. He's not gloating. He is, there, there's no sense here of vengeance. Here's another point that stands out to me as I read this song. You'll notice here the loyalty between a father and a son, between Saul and Jonathan. You see it most clearly in verses 22 and 23. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now, besides both being brave together, we see that the two of them possessed a particularly strong camaraderie, uh, a particular commitment to father and son. Maybe too rare today. We see it here. Had anybody had reason to separate and go opposite directions, it would have been Saul and Jonathan. Saul wanted to kill Jonathan's best friend. And yet there was a particular devotion simply because they were father and son. I find this very, not only commendable, but rare and amazing. Fathers, press on to give your children opportunities to have this sentiment towards you. This does not just happen, you have to work at it. They were committed to their family bond with a particular determination so that it reads here, in life and in death, they were not divided. They they, they had this unswerving ability to stay bonded. Fathers, we need to work at this. In this case here, I think it was Jonathan's effort more so than Saul's. But really, the responsibility should have been Saul's to his son. And that's where it rests with us, fathers. There's something to be said about their family devotion. Here's a third point that I see here in this lament. Who we place in charge really does matter, doesn't it? 
who we place in charge really does matter. Uh, because Saul was at the helm, at times the nation really did perish. This was one of those episodes. Because of how Paul conducted, or rather Saul conducted himself, the nation really suffered. Here they suffer in the hands of the Philistines. And unfortunately now word is going to spread like wildfire and they are going to be the mockery of the region. That's why verse 20 says, tell it not in Gath. Gath was a major city in, uh, among the Philistine region. It says, don't tell the, the story among the people of Gath. Why? Because they're going to laugh at us. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, another Philistine city, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice at the disastrous events in our own history. The pagan or the uncircumcised will exult. At times the nation flourishes under Saul. Verse 24 says, The daughters of Israel prospered under Saul. Uh, they had all kinds of gold and, and, and valuable uh, cloth, scarlet here it's referred to. But notice here, if you go back in your Jewish history, that God did not choose Saul to be the king. The people chose Saul, and God allowed it. And the reason why Saul was chosen was in part because of his pedigree. The other was because he was tall and handsome. I would only have 50% chance of becoming king. <laughs> tall and handsome. How things don't change, right? How the world remains the same. My friends, who we vote for, who we place in office, whatever office it may be, will have ramifications for us. Not just in social, political ways, but in very specific ways. There are going to be specific ramifications for us based on who we vote for. There's going to be ramifications for how we are allowed to live out our lives, not just with American freedoms, but as Christians. To what degree will we be allowed to believe and live out our faith? is very much dependent on how you vote. And you should vote. Oh, but my vote is going to be canceled. Vote. And vote according to biblical standards. According to biblical principles. I don't say vote red. I don't say vote blue. I say vote biblical. Which individual best reflects the principles of the Bible? There's your woman. There's your man. By the way, pray for us as we are now venturing into doing a Bible study uh, between Congressman Garrett and myself and another pastor among our local elected officials. At first, there was very little interest. The congressman was very disappointed. I was not surprised. Neither was he, but he was very disappointed. But by God's grace, one individual took interest. And in their political meetings, he has been spreading the word. Are you coming? They said, to what? To a Bible study. And guess what? They're saying, yes. I'll, I'll be there. Somebody is funding it with thousands of dollars. And we're going to start with breakfast. And then we're going to open the scriptures. 
and we're going to study the Word of God with various elected officials from within our county. Praise God is right. And what's our goal? Our goal is to influence them with the gospel so that they will know Christ. And then eventually it's going to benefit you. Why? Because prayerfully they will make decisions for our community that reflects the gospel of Christ. But pray for us. Pray for us. Uh, Pray for uh, uh, the congressman in particular as he makes all these political connections. And pray for me because now I have to teach. I'm looking forward to it, but it is a little intimidating. It's much easier to do it here. Pray for me. Pray for Pastor Doug as well. So who we place in office does really have ramifications. Your selection of our rulers has long-term and serious consequences. It will determine what our culture will embrace and allow us to speak and to do. I see a fourth lesson here. And it's something I'm sure you saw. And that is a lesson about friendship between men. You know, we don't have to say too much about women because women very, very willingly and very quickly develop strong, intimate relationships. But men do not. We find that extremely hard. Notice here that this is not foreign to David or Jonathan at all. But it is so foreign to us men that we look at this and we say, oh, how odd. In fact, as we read here, because this is so foreign, this is so strange to us, we read into it homosexual and perverse uh, uh, feelings into it, especially when we read verse 27, uh, verse 26 rather. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And numerous people have said, you see, David and Jonathan actually had a homosexual relationship. And that's because we do not know, men, how to be friends. We do not know how to love. We do not know how to be loved. We do not know how to express ourselves. That has become the general characteristic of the American man, Christian and non-Christian. We certainly know how to hang out. Right? We know how to have a blast. But friendship seems to escape us. Intimate friendship seems to escape us. Take a look at how David describes Jonathan. If you go right to the very beginning, verse 19, he says, Your glory, O Israel, not your glory, O God, O your glory, O people of this land, the Jewish nation, O Israel. Lie slain on your heights, how the mighty have fallen. And the word there, glory, in the Hebrew is also the word for gazelle. Uh, The gazelle being a glorious animal. And here David is referring to Jonathan as that sleek, fast, smooth operator on the battlefield. Refers to him as glorious, glorious. Have you ever seen a gazelle? They're beautiful. They are glorious animals. I remember being in a painted forest, uh, the painted desert, a petrified forest out in um, out in west. And I must say, there's a lot of petrified there, very little forest. 
and we asked the ranger whether or not we could climb up one of these mountains and, and it was a flat rock at one end and we wanted to get to that flat rock and I was surprised the ranger said go ahead and so the four of us went up it was me this cocky guy from from California from LA there was luggage luggage uh, all he did was sleep so in a car so we called him luggage a whole trip he missed a whole trip and this tall Canadian guy and we, we climbed up and we wanted to get to that flat rock and, and we, we, we had to walk this narrow uh, uh, part of the mountain about 12 inches uh, about 50 feet long 12 inches wide and, and um, I was the last one the guy in front of me froze and boy was that frightening and, and what we didn't know is that on the right side there was a valley that dropped about four times the height of what was on the left side. And from a distance, we could see the gazelles. And I was just picturing myself, down the mountain. But there were dozens and dozens of these animals just prancing beautifully and quickly and leaving this little cloud of dust behind it. Uh, by the way, we did cross eventually. The guy in front of me uh, finally scooted his way all the way up. And when we did finally get to that rock, that flat rock, what we didn't know is that it was dirt. And it began to crack under our feet. It was like a cartoon. It was like Wiley Coyote. <laughs> you know, the crack. And I was on the wrong side of the crack. <laughs> you should have seen how fast we made it back. I wonder if it's still there. <laughs> but... Um, what beautiful animals now. And here Jonathan describes the gazelle as that beautiful, uh, rather Jonathan, as that beautiful animal. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 23, he refers to Jonathan and Saul as beloved and lovely. He's speaking of both of them, but we can't get away of the fact that he's saying beloved. Now this is a man speaking about a man an unmistakable allusion to his affection. 209 times in the Old Testament this word is used. Sometimes it speaks of a love between a father and a son. Sometimes beloved in reference to a wife and her husband. Sometimes between a friend and a friend, as we see here. Sometimes between an enemy and a victim as we see here as well, because David is speaking of Saul as well. Beloved. Guys, when was the last time a friend called you beloved? And when he did, were you ready to hit him? (laughs) And lovely. Beloved and lovely, meaning that he is pleasant, or, or a person who brings pleasure to others. That's how he refers to Jonathan. And look at verse 26, he says, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now that is certainly far different than how we speak today. Uh, Men generally have a hard time developing deep friendships with other men. And as I said before, we know how to hang out. We really don't know how to deepen friendships. Here, David refers to Jonathan, who is his brother-in-law, as his brother. 
And by the way, Jonathan was next for the throne. And he knew that David was going to usurp the throne instead by God's hand. And yet they were still best of friends. Isn't that amazing? Still best of friends. They loved each other. In fact, we see in the scriptures that Jonathan and David loved each other more than they loved themselves. They were the deepest friends. And now David here deeply misses his friend. And what he refers to here is a particular love for each other that was even more special to him and more deep to him than the love of his own wives. Now granted, David became a polygamist. And if there's one way you want your wife to stop loving you is go chase another woman or marry another woman. And that's exactly what David did. Not once, not twice, but three or more times. And you could imagine the heartache in the home. And you could imagine why his wives were not necessarily affectionate towards him. But here, David speaks of Jonathan as one whose love for him was even greater than the love of his wife for him. In fact, if you compare it to 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16, at a point in which David was truly depressed, truly taken down, because Saul was chasing him, was trying to kill him, it says that Jonathan, Saul's son, rose up and went to David and strengthened David in God. Strengthened the hand of David in God. Do you have a friend like that? Someone who will come alongside of you and be that friend. Hebrews chapter 3 reads this way. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And then it goes on. Lest there be in any of you an evil or unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You come to a point where you just want to give it up. You don't want to follow the Lord anymore. Why should I keep doing this? And then comes your friend who encourages you in Christ. My friends, we are all prone to walk away from God. And the beauty of the church is that we encourage one another not to. But how good it is if we could find that friend who will come and be truly that friend. You see, David and Jonathan had a covenant friendship. You'll see in 1 Samuel 20 that they actually made this commitment to each other. They made a covenant to each other. They promised to be loyal to each other. That's the depth of their friendship. It wasn't based on, as long as you are nice to me, I'll be nice to you. As long as you treat me well, I'll treat you well. As long as we could talk sports or have things in common, we'll be great friends. No, far from it. It was a loyalty that they committed verbally to each other. And then they lived it out until one died. That's friendship. And rare, unfortunately. It doesn't have to be rare. But it is nowadays. Well, finally, and maybe you agree with me, finally, we get to the refrain, how the mighty have fallen. 
And I'll tell you now, I'll be brief, but I do want you to see it. It's mentioned three times in the text, verses 19, 25, and 27. The song begins with the refrain, and, um, and it ends with it. And everything in between is a reflection of that truth, how the mighty have fallen. One day you are mighty, the next day you are not. One day you are powerful, the next day you are gone. Nixon resigned. The dictator Noriega was incarcerated. The Beatles broke up. ABC News Matt Lauer was fired. Judge Napolitano was disgraced. He lives right up the road here. The Russian army fights to hang on. How the mighty have fallen. Now notice here the word mighty is plural. Jonathan and Saul. But it's not limited to Jonathan and Saul. It's anybody. It's all of us. How the mighty can so easily fall. Jonathan and Saul were faster than eagles, stronger than lions, yet they both die in battle. You know what I'm reminded of when I read of that? I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 9.1.1 Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now we know that to be true. The older you get, you know that to be true. And what I find very lamentable, really lamentable about all this, uh, about my own life experiences, is not just um, the death of a person, but the death of a possibility. The death of a dream. The death of what could have been. What could have been. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, uh, the prophet Samuel is speaking to Saul. And look at what he says. He says, Saul, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. If you had, Saul, if you were not so foolish, this would not be happening to you. Saul was, Saul was injured in battle, and he falls on his own sword. Afraid of being captured by the enemy. Well, in closing, let me give you three things to remember every time you hear that phrase, how the mighty have fallen. Three quick things to remember. The first one is this. God is in control. He is in control. It is God who will lift us up, and it is God who will take us down. We do not have to lift ourselves up above others. And understand this. Those who lift themselves up above others, God will take down how the mighty have fallen. Your days are ordered and numbered by God. Here's a second thing to remember whenever you hear that phrase, how the mighty have fallen. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 3. It reads this way, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. At the end of the matter, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. A second thing to remember is this. Enjoy your days. Absolutely. Enjoy them. But never forget that we are each answerable to God. Enjoy your life on this earth, but never in the process forget that you are answerable to God. Some people only remember that and they forget to enjoy life. And some people are so focused on enjoying life, they forget that they are answerable to God. My friends, both are true and essential. Here's a third thing to remember. If it is your desire to be mighty, if it is your desire to be mighty in this life, seek to be mighty in the eyes of Christ. Let that be your might in the eyes of Christ. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, we pray, O God, that indeed we would measure our days and that we would know your hand over us. And then when we lament, we would be thrust to trust more in you. In your name we pray. Amen.